So a woman bought a parrot to keep her company, but she returned it the next day and said, this bird doesn't talk, she told the shopkeeper. Well, does he have a mirror in his cage, he asked. You know, parrots love mirrors, and when they see the reflection, they get chatty. So the woman bought a mirror and left. Next day she returned. The bird still wasn't talking. Well, how about a ladder? You see, uh, parrots love ladders, and a happy parrot is a talkative parrot. So she bought a ladder and left. But the next day she was back. Does your parrot have a swing? Well, no, that's the problem, because once he starts swinging, ah, he'll talk up a storm. So she reluctantly bought the swing and left. She walked in the pet store the next morning, and her countenance had fallen. She said the parrot died. The store owner was just shocked. Well, I'm so sorry. Uh, Please tell me the story. Uh, Like, did he ever say anything before he died? And she said, yeah, right before he died. In a very weak voice, he asked me, don't they sell any food at that pet store? (laughs) 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 Well, friends, sometimes we forget the main things. So this morning, we're launching a brand new series of sermons titled, Our God is Too Small. And over the next six weeks, in stories rooted in the Old Testament saints, we're going to be encouraged about one of the main things, to see and experience God in bigger ways. You know, we gather together on Sunday mornings after a challenging week of managing and balancing our responsibilities at home and at work and with our spouse and the kids and managing the money and the household and dealing with crises and and trying to find a little space and recreation for ourselves. And one of the main things that we need is just to be reminded of how big God is, of how worthy he is of our worship, and just how capable he is of leading and guiding and providing and caring for us as his sons and his daughters. So in these next mornings together, uh, we're going to rediscover in the story of Joseph that God is present, in the story of David that God is able, in the story of Gideon that God is powerful, in the story of Job that God is faithful, in the story of the three Hebrew children that God is trustworthy. And this morning, in the story of Jacob, we're going to rediscover that God is good. Let's pray together. Lord, we bow our heads and hearts before at the start of this brand new week, and we say thank you. Thank you for the beauty of another day. Thank you for the gift of life and breath and soundness of mind that enables us to gather. Thank you for the gift of friendship uh, with our brothers and sisters and, uh, uh, Lord, people that are are now here for the very first time and the opportunity to, to trade life stories and see where you've worked and where you are working. You are good. Pray that you'd inspire us this morning to worship you that you'd encourage us in our relationship with you and with one another. You would equip us for ministry where we work and live and learn and play and go to school. We pray you'd bring your kingdom. Lord, break through where we need to be healed or forgiven or comforted or convicted or set free. We pray that you'd reveal yourself as a gracious and loving and good God. Power on your word to our lives in your name. Amen.
Well, the Bible tells us that every human being is created in the image of God, Genesis 1.26. And while we don't know all that this profound truth means, at some level it means that we all carry in our hearts and in our minds uh, perceptions about who God is and what he's like. Because of our early childhood religious training and our subsequent life experiences, some disappointments and some failures, many of us think of God as way too small or perhaps weak or distant or uninterested or maybe unable to do anything. For others of us, the problems that we have with God are rooted in our own thinking that we're too unworthy or we're too broken or too sinful or we've lapsed on too many of our promises and commitments to God or we're too whatever to possibly warrant his love and provision, his tender care for us as children. And so when the church gathers uh, at the start of every week, one of the main things that we need is to be reminded from the scriptures of just how big God is and who we are as his sons and daughters. We need to be reminded in the sweeping story of God that the Bible teaches uh, uh, how good God is and how big he is, that he's loving and that he's present and he's powerful and he's wise enough to administer his, his love and his power in just the right ways at just the right times in our life story, that he he's faithful and dependable and trustworthy. I fear at times we've thought that our God is too small. The truth is that he's real big, that he's always bigger than we imagine. And so this morning we're going to look at the life of the patriarch Jacob, and we'll see that God is good. Now the story of Jacob is found uh, in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, from chapters 25 to 50. It covers nearly one half of the book, which is an indication of its relative importance. Jacob was the son of Isaac and Rebekah, the grandson of Abraham and Sarah. He was the younger twin brother of Esau. His parents, Isaac and Rebekah, had been childless for 20 years when God answered Isaac's prayers for a child. Now, friends, 20 years is a long time to wait for a prayer to be answered, isn't it? But the twins struggled in her womb. And then when Rebecca asked God, like, what's going on with the kids? He answered this way, Genesis 25. The The two children struggled with each other in her womb. And when she went to ask the Lord about it, the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. Think about it. This word from God affected the parents, Isaac and Rebekah, affected the twins, Jacob and Esau, and really the subsequent history of the entire world. Part of what we see happening in the Middle East even today is a result of this prophecy that God gave to this mother. The twins were born, Esau first. His name means hairy because he was. 
Jacob born second, his name means the one who grabs the heel because he did as he came out. More literally, it's one who trips up another. That's what happens if you were to grab their heel. We might say today he was a deceiver. Now, almost immediately, there was tension and strife in the home as the parents picked favorites. Isaac preferred Esau, his bold, daring, stronger, older son, while Rebecca favored Jacob. He was gentle and domestic. He preferred to stay at home. Isaac, in the story, seemed to resist the will of God that had already been declared over the kids. Rebecca seemed impatient and wanted to hurry along its fulfillment because it favored Jacob. In a fit of hunger one day, Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. The birthright was a double share of the inheritance of all that the father owned, as well as lordship over the rest of the family once he passed. And then, on still another occasion, recorded in Genesis 27, Jacob stole the father's blessing. Here's what happened. The twins were now grown men, about 60 years old. Forget all the pictures you saw on the flannel graph in Sunday school growing up, if such was the case. They were not young boys. They were grown men, about 60 years of age. Isaac was 137 years with dim eyesight, failing health. No doubt uh, thoughts of his impending death were at the forefront of his mind. And Isaac resolved now to bestow the father's blessing on Esau, the privilege that normally belonged to the firstborn, although God had indicated it was to go to Jacob the younger, that he would be the son through whom the promise that God had given to grandfather Abraham would actually come to pass. Now, Rebecca overheard the conversation, and it's quite likely that she'd been waiting for such an opportunity. She might have been thinking, well, that's right. Didn't God speak to me that the younger Jacob would be the heir? Hasn't Esau already proven himself unfit, selling his birthright for a a bowl of porridge? And how many times have Isaac and I argued over who was to actually get the blessing? And so Rebecca probably thought that she would be helping fulfill the will of God by preventing Isaac from blessing Esau. So she proposed to Jacob to take advantage of Isaac's diminishing eyesight and to impersonate Esau. You see, Isaac couldn't just run down to the corner all about eyes and grab a pair of fashion bifocals for $39 and see clearly. It didn't work that way. So together they they colluded to deceive Isaac by dressing Jacob up in Esau's clothes, making and serving some of his favorite soup, Isaac some of his favorite soup, and then receiving the father's blessing as Isaac would think he was blessing Esau. So now, Rebecca and Jacob are lying, being deceitful. Isaac was disobeying the word of the Lord that Jacob, the younger, was to be blessed. Esau was profane, driven by having been driven by his senses, proving that he was really an untrustworthy heir of the blessing of Abraham. And so 
In this stage, in their unfolding life drama, you've got Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau, all sinful, guilty parties in this transaction. Can you say family dysfunction in its finest? There is sin and blame and guilt spread everywhere in this story. Now, I'm strangely comforted that these are the kinds of people that God uses. (laughs) Because it means there's room for you and me. Or I could say me. I don't know about you, but I find that that the Bible is not this, you know, sanitized, like, inspirational story that all of God's people wear garments white and glistening with a halo and that their life is perfectly ordered. And those are the people he uses. He uses everyday, ordinary, broken, messed up, dysfunctional families like Jacob's. Now, from that time on, Genesis declares Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme. I will Soon be mourning my father's death, and then I'll kill my brother Jacob. Consequently, Jacob fled for his life into Padan Aram in Genesis 28. Now, how many of us could look in the rearview mirror of our family history, uh, our relationships, or even our life circumstances, and identify with this part of the story of Jacob? complicated and messy, a combination of choices that we've made and things that have been done to us. In this story, we've seen so far lying, deception, parental favoritism, deliberate disobedience, selfishness, extreme sibling rivalry expressed in anger and now hatred and the threat of murder. Perhaps your past has been littered with similar challenges, and now the future you face may look as bleak as Jacob's did. And you wonder, how in the world could God possibly redeem this complicated, dysfunctional mess? You know, we think that our family or our family constellation, our relationships, our life circumstances are just confusing and broken and divided. Maybe in your case, there's been a divorce and then a remarriage and now dealing with the exes blended families, issues between siblings, parents and kids, you and the in-laws, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins. Maybe it's a close friend or a, a neighbor, a former business partner. Maybe it's friends in a former church or a pastor in a former church or maybe a guidance counselor or a coach or a teacher, someone that you had a, a relationship with in the past, uh, uh, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend or a fiance. There's hurt, there's pain, there's betrayal, perhaps abuse, broken promises, maybe years or or perhaps decades of silence and no relationship. In fact, in some cases, you couldn't even remember the original cause of the offense that created the breach. We're guilty, they're guilty, we're all guilty, we've all done stuff, we've all said stuff, and now, like Jacob, we're in exile. We shake our heads and think, our God's just too small. The story continues in Genesis 28, 10 to 11. Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. 
And at sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stop there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against, and he lay down to sleep. So get the picture. Jacob's now an outcast from his home. He's a fugitive. He's a displaced exile, homeless, running for his life, having lost everything that was the source of value and security for him. Family, friends, relatives, neighborhood, culture, way of life, the promise of the future, everything was gone. Doubt and fear pressing in, unsure of what the future holds. One historian described the place where he was now staying, Haran, this way, quote, a lonely, weird place, an uneven valley full of stones, some standing up here and there like druid monuments. Jacob's laying on the ground with a stone for a pillow. You probably couldn't get a clearer picture of absolute, total brokenness, isolation, hopelessness. He's fearing for his life, provision for the journey ahead. It's marinated, as it were, with worry about an uncertain future. Can you identify? Life is hard. I love that about the Bible, that, that it's so honest and, and so real. It's, it's not a sanitized text for a motivational message. It's real. It's gritty. It's, it's the substance that you and I uh, identify with. We read then in Genesis 28. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I'm the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham, the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west, the east, the north, and the south, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. And what's more, I am with you, and I'll protect you wherever you go. One day, I'll bring you back to this land. I'll not leave you until I've finished giving you everything I have promised you. Wow, that's powerful. The Lord revealed himself in a surprising and powerful way in the original stairway to heaven. They just stole it from the Bible. It was a dream. God speaks through dreams. And in this dream, God spoke very clearly to Jacob, addressing all of his fears and concerns. And we could summarize today as God saying, I am good. He renewed to Jacob in the fullest possible manner the promise and blessing that was given to his grandfather Abraham and then to his father Isaac. And despite the deceptive circumstances around receiving the father's blessing from Isaac, circumstances that perhaps had now caused Jacob some degree of concern, Maybe realizing, well, that wasn't quite so good after all. God was now reaffirming his full blessing. The land was his. He would have countless descendants. All the families on the earth would be blessed through him. And then God reassured him of his continual abiding 
presence. I'll be with you. I'll protect you. And then the icing on the cake, as it were, God promised that all of the purposes for Jacob's life would be fulfilled. Wouldn't be one day short of fulfilling all that God intended for Jacob. He would live it out and that, in fact, he would return to the land. Pretty powerful. You have, they're lying on the ground. Jacob is a poor, helpless, forsaken, lonely, fearful man. And above stands Jehovah God himself on the ladder, the top of the ladder of promise and blessing, the place where heaven touches earth. Now, it's interesting, in the New Testament, we learn through the Apostle John that Christ himself is the ladder. John 1, 51. Then Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven opened and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Jesus is the gap between God and man. He stands in the place of blessing where heaven touches earth. And God is revealing himself as good. He's not holding Jacob accountable for all the stuff in the rearview mirror. With one revelation, he dismisses all of Jacob's concerns and fears and worries. It's as if God said, Jacob, your God is too small. Look at me. I stand in the heavens. I have multitudes of angels to do my bidding. They come and go as I wish. I've made promises of provision to your grandfather and then to your dad and now to you. I'm good. I'm going to go with you. I'll protect you. I'll keep you. You don't need to fear missing out on my purposes for your life. Your past cannot derail your future in me. You do not need to fear what's in the rearview mirror. In fact, you're going to live out the full complement of days that are necessary for my will to be fulfilled in your life. Wow. In that one revelation of God's goodness, God cleared it all up and empowered Jacob actually to be sustained, catch this, for the next 20 years. This word of revelation, this understanding of God's goodness sustained Jacob for the next 20 years. And I I really believe that God wants to reveal himself to us as good. Right now, in your place of absolute total brokenness or isolation or hopelessness or fear or uncertainty or doubt, wondering about God's provision and his will for your, your future, In the middle of all that, God wants you to know that he is good. That's one of the main things. He's good. Now, Jacob arrived in the country of his uncle Laban. He fell in love with his, uh, with the daughter, his daughter Rachel, for whom he had agreed to work seven years. In the story, however, having once deceived his own father, Jacob is now deceived by his father-in-law. And on the day after his wedding night, he discovered that instead of Rachel, he'd actually been given her older, less attractive sister, Leah, to be his wife. Hello! (laughs) So he committed another seven years of work, 
for Rachel. And then Jacob worked an additional six years for the inheritance of flocks and herds. In this time, Jacob brought his uncle Laban great prosperity. And over these two decades, Jacob, the poor wanderer who left home with only a walking stick, now was greatly blessed by God himself, by the good God, as he faithfully served his father-in-law. He became the owner of vast herds and, and flocks. He had slaves. He was blessed with 12 sons through two wives and two concubines. And this period of, of 20 years passes in just several chapters of the Bible record. Now, I think it's important because, you know, it makes for much quicker reading, five to seven minutes, than it did for actual living. 20 years is a long time. And in this time, Jacob saw the good God as faithful to all of the promises that he'd given him that night there in the desert. God's hand was on Jacob for 20 years, protecting him and blessing him right there in the middle of family squabbles and jealousies among children and wives and concubines and in-laws and the herdsmen and the father-in-law's deception and changing his wage and job description every other year. In the middle of all that, God was faithful. And it probably, on any given day, probably seemed insufferably long to Jacob. We read the story and it passes quickly. And we suffer from a, a, a distortion of, my, of time compression in the Bible. It was day in, day out that God's goodness came just a little bit at a time. One day, little by little, as Jacob faithfully served his father-in-law in the midst of all that confusion. Jacob framed it this way one time when he prayed. Lord, I'm not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. And now my household fills two large camps. I own cattle and donkeys and flocks of sheep and goats and many servants, both men and women. And I just want to encourage you. God's goodness is going to be revealed over a span of time where we remain faithful to do the job that God has given us to do. So often, you know, when we pray and, and Jesus doesn't answer within about 24 hours, well, we just like give up on God. Don't we? We're that way. And we need to be reminded by this powerful story that God is good and that his goodness manifests over the long haul. We need to just keep serving Jesus and keep worshiping him, and keep trusting him and his promises, and staying faithful to serve in the church, in our community, stay faithful and connecting with God and with his brothers and sisters, the church, to keep obeying what he tells us to do, to keep obeying left foot, right foot, love God, serve God, love others, serve others. And in that rhythm of faithfulness and trusting God and serving God, and holding on to his promises, we'll see him faithful, and God will reveal himself as good. Now, as the two decades in Haran 
came to a close, God told Jacob, Genesis 31, 3, return to the land of your father and grandfather and to your relatives there, and I'll be with you. Now, of course, God added that last phrase because this command, this instruction, meant reuniting with his estranged twin brother, Esau, whom he'd not seen for over 20 years, from whom he had fled with fear of his life. You can imagine what kind of anxieties might still have been rumbling around in Jacob's heart and mind. Was Esau still cherishing thoughts of revenge? How would he meet me? Will he fulfill the vow he made to take my life? What would he say? What would he do? In verse 7 of chapter 32, we read that Jacob was terrified. I guess so. Those people that say that time heals, they don't know what they're talking about. Quite honestly, time doesn't heal a thing. It may dull the pain, and it may make the memory a little less poignant. It doesn't do anything to remove fear and hurt and pain and betrayal, and especially in families. In some cases, in fact, time may only serve to concretize the breach that's already there. So Jacob sends scouts to offer a greeting in an attempt to appease his offended brother. The messengers return without any other reply than that that Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men. That would have been sufficiently alarming, right? So absolutely hopeless, Jacob does what all of God's children should do. He prayed. He prayed. In um, Genesis 32, verses 9 to 12. O God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives, and you promised me I'll treat you kindly. O Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid that he's coming back to attack me along with my wives and children But you promised me, I will surely treat you kindly, and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore, too many to count. I think Jacob's prayer is interesting. It states his case. Lord, you told me to return. This is not my problem. This is yours. He reflected on God's previous promises. He recounted God's faithfulness over the last 20 years. And then he requested deliverance based upon God's nature and goodness. He appealed to God as a covenant-keeping God. The word is Jehovah. And it's, it's as if Jacob says, I appeal to you because you keep your promises. That's your nature. You're a good God. And then he coupled the prayer with action. I like that. Prayer is not the the antithesis of personal responsibility. You know where, is if I pray, then I don't have to do anything. Or I'm just trusting God. 
Jacob divided his flocks and his herds and sent them ahead with a special blessing of greeting and then gifts to Esau. As the night fell, he divided up his family and sent them ahead of their camp there at the Jabbok River. And then verse 24, we find Jacob all alone in the camp. As he was 20 years ago, on the night when he first left his father's house, here he was, alone again, unnaturally. Here's what we read, verse 24. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip, and wrenched it out of socket. And then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. What's your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel, because you've fought with God and men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. And then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means the face of God. For he said, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. So Jacob wrestled with a man. Jacob refused to let the man go until he was blessed. And then the man changed his name from Jacob, deceiver, to Israel, a prince with God. And then he blessed Jacob there. Now, so what's what's the significance? What's going on here? Well, this was totally a supernatural event. Because a normal wrestling match of three rounds of total of seven minutes leaves you totally exhausted. You cannot wrestle all night long without it being a cosmic supernatural event. But I think in a way, this wrestling match was symbolic of Jacob's life. The past, the present, the future. Here was a man who uh, who had been wrestling with God his whole life. And now he's wrestling with what texts call the angel of the Lord. Scholars actually believe it's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's a Christophany. It's an appearance of Jesus uh, in, in the flesh before he appeared on the earth. But, you know, all of his life, Jacob had been wrestling with God, trying to attain success in some ways, in, in his in his own strength, and his own faithfulness. But now, in the face of his brother Esau, he was at the absolute total end of his rope. He was helpless. And before he could encounter his enemy, Jacob would need to encounter the good God once again. And now Jacob, wizened by life experiences, would not let go of the good God until God blessed him. And then he did. God blessed him. God couldn't prevail against Jacob. And then, as we see on other occasions on the scripture, and throughout scripture, when people had a significant encounter with God, God changed his name from deceiver to a prince of God as a memorial. You see, friends, encounters with the living God change our life. They change the, the trajectory of our life. Encounters with Christ uh, become the codex upon which the rest of our life 
hangs and unfolds. And you never know where you're going to encounter them. It could be on Sunday morning as we gather together in the when worship reaches its zenith in the community in a way that it can't unfold in your personal devotions or in your small group. It may be this week when you humble yourself to receive prayer. It may be in your, in your time with God this week, either reading the Bible or praying. You never know when you're going to encounter the living Christ, the ladder that stands between heaven and earth to bring the goodness of God to you. But when it comes, it's going to forever change everything. And so I show up every Sunday morning with a deep expectation that God's kingdom is going to break through. It's not just going to be, oh, another service. I got another one down. Check. Check, check, read my Bible today, check, you know, whatever. No, like I expect that the living God is actually going to encounter us, that there'll be a breakthrough. And we should gather with that expectancy. When you gather in your small group, there should be an expectancy. When you crack open your Bible in, in the in the early morning dawn with a cup of coffee or late at night because you're a night owl, you should expect the living Christ to speak to you and, and, and interact with you and bring the kingdom and actually cause something to happen because he's good. That's what the story teaches us. And who knows, in one of those moments that God is going to encounter you and change the entire trajectory of your life, like he did with Jacob. It was the next day that Jacob and Esau reconciled. And we read in 33, chapter 33, verse 4, that Jacob went on ahead, and as he approached his brother, he bowed to the ground seven times before him. Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him, and they both wept. God did what neither of them could imagine, because he is so big and so good. When our backs are against the wall, when we have no more resources, our hopes are diminished, we don't know what to do, our family constellations are so messed up, the relationships are so breached, our life circumstances are so complicated and messy, We can wrestle with God and not let go until he blesses us. We're not going to take no for an answer is the story of the life of Jacob. God is good enough and big enough to meet our needs. The story of Jacob encourages us to cry out to God and hold on to him until we see the breakthrough of God's kingdom. If we've thought that God is too small, too limited in resources or ability or in love or even in a desire to help, then let's let the story of Jacob reframe our beliefs. And and let's wrestle with God and be willing to trust God because he's good and willing to bless us. God, we, we thank you that the story of Jacob shouts about your goodness and your desire to rescue us. Help us remember one of the main things that you're good and that you you want us to, to hold on to you until you fulfill those promises that you've already spoken. And Lord, today I, I just want to pray for any person in our church family who's who's wrestling and feels like their resources are diminished or their, their hopes are dim. Uh, or that their backs are, are against the circumstantial wall, that you'd release among us today, Lord, even new hope and, and the gift of faith that, that we could trust you, that you're good. Thank you. And now, Lord, as we offer our, our lives to you again through 
through the giving of our gifts to you and through the lifting of our heart and hand in song. We pray that you'd receive these gifts for what they are, tokens that we want to trust you, love you, and serve you with our whole life in your name. Amen.